0: We've been in Luke, Uh, if you're just joining us, we've been in Luke, Uh, we're going to be in Luke, and uh, we're we're just just getting started, so Luke 1, verse 18 is where we're going to be today, Uh, we're going to read down to verse 25, this is part 2, if you need a Bible, uh, ushers are bringing them out, please raise your hands, Um, if you don't have one, please keep it, Uh, like like Jerry was saying earlier, nothing like the Word of God, and, and what a privilege to even hold it in our hands. Um, if you want to give it away, give it away. Uh, yeah, we want it. We want them to spread. <clears throat> but it's Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament, chapter one, and we're uh, we're reading in verse eighteen down to <coughs> excuse me down to verse twenty five. You guys ready? Read, pray, and get moving. Zechariah said to the angel. Let me give a brief reminder here. Uh, this angel has showed up to Zechariah and, and, and uh, announced the coming of, of John the Baptist, okay? Um, that, the son, that this son is going to be given to him. And here's where we pick it up in verse 18 Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24. After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray, guys. I've just been thinking, Lord, about the conversion of Paul on the Damascus Road and how that light and that voice came for him he saw you he heard you in that moment and he was changed forever and yet there were a group of people around him that just heard a noise. They didn't hear your voice. They just saw a light. They didn't see your face. God, I'm praying for people in this room that as we open up your word, we wouldn't just hear noise. We would hear your voice. We wouldn't, as we peer into the window of your Gospel, we wouldn't just see a bright light and wonder, what was that? We would see your face and fall down in adoration before you. God, but we know that only you can do this by the power of your Spirit. You revealed yourself to Paul and you reveal yourself to us. And I'm praying, open our eyes, open our ears, God. Cause us to be born again in this room if we have not already. And give us fresh vision of Yourself. We need You, Lord. (laughs) And we're treading on supernatural ground things that Nick Weber or anybody else can't accomplish. It has to be You. So I pray, Lord, that You would be here. Pray You'd strike out anything from my, my message that doesn't need to be there. Help me, God, to be Your messenger. Because you love every single person in this room and you want them to know you. Would you do that through our time together here this morning, we pray? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, Let me get a sip here real quick. So this is now, as I said, the uh, second part to the message I began two weeks ago now, dealing with this same text. Um, the announcement and the promise of a son by this angel, to Zechariah, talking about John the Baptist, it's already been made, okay? That was the verses previous to verse 18 in our text this morning. But as we move into verse 18, now we see Zechariah respond. He speaks in response to all that he's seen and heard at this point. And like I said last time, it's not particularly uh, positive. It's not an endearing image that we're given of Zechariah. In fact, because he responds with unbelief, with interrogation, with question and doubt, this will actually be the last time we hear from Zechariah for nine months, which in our text um, equates to 46 verses. It's not until verse 64 when Zechariah's lips will, his tongue will be loosed and we 'll hear from him again, and he will sing a different tune at that point. I made the case last time that Zechariah 's gotten caught in the drift of doubt. if I um, judging by some responses, I was concerned that maybe certain things weren 't as clear uh, as they could have been. Um, last time that 's the danger of mixing of breaking a message into two parts. Hopefully some of that becomes clearer here this morning if it doesn 't i 'm always up for conversation afterwards. Um, But I made the case that he'd gotten caught in the drift of doubt. And I want to continue to follow these verses through the three headings. Last time was verse 18, in the drift of doubt. This morning we have two more headings that we're going to look at. The discipline of grace, verses 19 to 23 in our text. And then the destiny of the saints, verses 24 to 25. That point three... It's just going to be a sentence maybe at the end of the message if I even get to it, okay? So sorry, I got carried away with point number two. That's probably all we'll do. And we'll just pretend that third one, uh, yeah, we'll just fold it into the rest. So uh, if you missed last time, I'm not too concerned to give a review here because actually as we move into verse 19 and the angel's response to Zechariah's doubt It's actually going to serve as a review of last time and also as a means of moving us forward into this week's message. So, we begin, therefore, with this discipline of grace, verses 19-23. to But before we do that, I want to read verse 18 again. I want us to hear Zechariah's words one more time so that we can clearly see its connection to all that follows. This is verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The question, it seems to me, uh, comes down essentially to a demand that God give him some proof. In other words, he's saying, listen, look at my body, look at my wife, look at our age, you see the gray hair, there is no way. Your words are too fanciful. Your word, it is not enough for me. I need some sign if I'm going to believe that a son is actually going to come to me and my wife who's been barren for God knows how long. I need a sign. This is, this is, this is crazy. Give me some proof if what you're saying is for real. Again, your word, Gabriel, God, isn't enough. Now we come to verse 19, and the angel responds, and let's read this. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this Good news. So Zechariah's question, this is amazing. How shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. Is Gabriel going to give him some proof? What sort of sign? What is he going to do to help Gabriel at this point? All he does, all, 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 all Gabriel does is say, look at me. (laughs) Look at me. It doesn't have to argue with him here. He just simply identifies who he is and what his mission is. He said, I am Gabriel, his first thing is to direct Zechariah's attention to the dignity of the one standing before him. Don't you know who I am? I know you know. You're a priest. You're a teacher of the law. Haven't you read Daniel? I was there, and now I'm standing before you here. I am Gabriel. What more do you need? But then he goes on, gives him a little bit more if that's not enough. I stand in the presence of God. And even more, it is God who sent me to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In other words, this promise that I'm bringing to you. God is the cosigner on this. If you are questioning me, those questions rise to the highest court because He has sent me. I stand in His presence and He said, Gabriel, go to Zechariah and give him this news. And now you're telling me that my word, His word, is not enough. The answer might seem a bit rough to us um, at first, But I'll tell you what, if you're a parent in this room, if you remember being a parent of young kids, if you're currently a parent of young kids, you totally get this. There are times, I'm like, where the only way to stop a debate in my household with my three-year-old is to say, I am your daddy. (laughs) I don't have to prove to you why you need to wear a coat in 40-degree weather. I am your daddy. I am three times your size, ten times your age. That's enough put in your life by God to lead you, right? Why? I'm your dad. I'm your daddy. And Gabriel basically does something similar. Listen, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He gave me his words. I'm here giving them to you. That should be enough, right? Regarding Gabriel's response in this verse, um, there are many things we could make note of. I'll share just a couple. First, and this this knocked me off balance. It took me by surprise. This is pretty amazing to think about. Note that Gabriel is sent. Right? You see it up there? Um, where he says, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent by God to speak to you. just thought, man, how incredible is it to think about that these beings, majestic, mighty, way more dignified, way more lofty than we are, God puts them in our service. He sends them to serve us. These beings that when they show up at first, every human being goes, oh my gosh, and some even try to worship because they think it's God or something. These beings that are so far above us are actually in divine providence put in a sense, under us. They are sent. Now listen to this in Hebrews. Uh, this is incredible. Hebrews one fourteen. They are all angels, ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's Hebrews one fourteen. Angels are sent out to serve you and I, I just said, man, this is incredible. There are other texts in Hebrew we could go into this for a while, and I had it, but I cut it out. But it's just, it's amazing to think about. You see it in Hebrews too, even where he said, listen, it's not the angels that God helped when they fell. He didn't take on the form of an angel and go to the cross for them. No, but He helps the son of uh, the offspring of Abraham. It says. He takes on flesh and blood and comes for us and brings the angels in to help us so much so that the angels are longing to look into what God is doing with little old me. Tiny little minuscule unimportant me. Angels, angelic beings and hosts wanting to look in. That is incredible the love of God that he has for us, ready to help us at every turn. Gabriel, go to Zechariah and give him this message. It's the, it's the meaning of unglos, of angel in the, the Greek, is messenger. You take my words, bring it to them. Serve them. Second thing we could note is how Gabriel describes what he was sent by God to do. Namely, I was sent to bring you this good news. Now, we who know, um, you know, have been in Christian circles for a while, know, okay, good news, sent to bring you this good news. It's true. In the Greek underneath, we start thinking about gospel. That, that's what it is. It's actually the word that uh, becomes to characterize later the preaching of the gospel. I've been sent, in other words, to come and proclaim to you the gospel, if you will. I mean, that's what he's coming to give to Zechariah in these moments. It's 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 as if the news concerning John the Baptist is to be understood as the first discernible ray, if you will, kind of fanning up over the dark horizon before the sunrise from on high. Luke one seventy eight shows up in the person of Jesus Christ. So this is kind of like it's kind of like five a.m. glow here of gospel. As uh, as as, Gabriel is is giving this word about John the Baptist who's going to prepare the way for Jesus the Christ. This is good news he's come to bring, and we focused a few sermons back on how it would bring joy and gladness to Zechariah and to many. But, but. This service, this gospel proclamation is met by Zechariah not with joy, not with faith, but with incredulity, with unbelief, with doubt, right? How shall I know this, he says to the angel? I will not rejoice in these words until I get some proof you just got to look at the stubbornness of the flesh, the stubbornness of of our nature and shudder. That we would look at the help God is bringing, these majestic beings being put in our service, this gospel news and grace calling us into joy. I've heard your prayer and I'm answering it. And we stand back and we go, Prove. I don't buy it. You know, we refuse to enter in to this 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 grace, this glory that God is moving us into. We turn it back on God and put him in the dock. Now we continue with Gabriel's response and, and we come to verse twenty. Things get even more serious at this point for Zechariah. Let's read it. And behold, he says. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Here's what we see. We're given the discipline, first of all. You will be silent, unable to speak. And later in verse 22, we, we see it also described as mute. His mouth is going to just dry up, close up. There's going be nothing coming out. You used your words to interrogate. I take your words away. We're given the discipline and we're given the grounds because you did not believe my words. Unbelief has left Zechariah now in silence. We're given the discipline and we're given the grounds, but we're also now, believe it or not, given the grace. I want to show you this. This is why I named the heading the way I did. The discipline of grace is what we're looking at. We're given the grace. Where am I seeing this in our text here in verse 21st? This silence while discipline is at the same time a sign. It might not have been the sign that Zechariah was asking when he said, how am I going to know this? You've got to give me some sort of proof here. Might not have been, he might have been thinking, okay, shut me up and that'll be the evidence that I know you're, you're for real. Uh, he might not have been looking for that kind of sign, but it is a sign nonetheless. And in that sense, it is grace. It is, it is to help Zechariah in faith. Actually, whoa, I spoke with an angel of God. If he could do this to me, he, he will make good on his other word as well. In fact, this sign is so significant. If you look at verse 22, when uh, Zechariah comes out, when he comes out of the holy place and the crowd that had been around praying and things like that, sees him and they see the muteness, they know, read this, they know what it means. When he came out, verse 22, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. This sign was so significant they knew God showed up and he showed you something. What was it? I can't tell you. <laughs> Second, notice with me those wonderful words at the end of this verse. This is incredible, and we spent time with it last time, but it's, it's worthy of more reflection here. At the end of verse 20, grace just starts erupting. It says this, Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in in their time which will be fulfilled he may be silenced in other words but he will still be carried along by grace do you understand this these words that you did not believe about a son and how i'm coming in grace for you will still be fulfilled and we look and in one sense we think, man, okay, God is moving forward with his, uh, in His plan without Zechariah here. And that is true in many ways. But we must not miss that God is moving forward with His plan, not in spite, not against Zechariah, but for Him. And what we actually have is Zechariah silenced and set aside, if you will, so that he can just kind of watch as God now would work this redemption on his behalf. God alone can do this. He will sit in silence, but his unbelief didn't stop the plan from marching forward. These words will be fulfilled. You will sit. You will watch. And just some images that came to my mind at this point. He, he may be knocked out of the, the raft of self-sufficiency, as it were. But he fell head headlong into the crystal current of God's grace. I mean, you think, okay, Zechariah, you will be silent. Oof, he's out of the raft of self-sufficiency at this point. And he falls right into the stream of God's grace. I'm going still. I'm going still. I'm just humbled now. I'm ready to see it. Or another thing, he may be kicked off of the, the stage, if you will. But he's not expelled from the theater of God's redemption. Instead, he's given front row seats. Okay, you're not going to be, you're not going to be the star of the show, Zechariah. But I'm not kicking you out the door. I'm just giving you front row seats. You be quiet and you watch as these words, which I said, will be fulfilled. Grace is coming whether you're ready for it or not. He is to be both silenced and saved. And I thought, man, what what a principle is forged here for the, for the children of God. You know, some of us probably feel kind of silenced. We feel like kicked out of the game, maybe. We feel like God is, is done with us. He's over with us. But we have that text, right? And, and we see it going on here, Hebrews 12, 6, where the Lord... Disciplines the one he loves. Don't despise the rod. He is—he's not get, uh, getting rid of us. He's not done with us. He is instructing us. He is teaching us. And here's the reality: the Christian life cannot begin until this vital principle is learned. Not I, but God. I cannot do it, but He can. And that's where where God is going with Zechariah in these moments. And when we get that lesson, not only can we be saved by 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 Christ and His grace, but now we can do the work of the ministry and the strength that He supplies by faith. Right? Okay. How are you guys feeling? You guys all right? I, I mean, I'm I'm finding I'm hugging myself up here. So I imagine you've got to be cold. Um, i got to, you know, no one's taking that up. We've got a vest over there with down in it. All right. A question emerges at this point. And it's a question that came up. So, there it is. From some, <laughs> from some uh, perceptive individuals last time. And, and it's important to answer it here. Um, here's the question. Might be something you, you all are even thinking about right now. Why does God respond, it seems, so much tougher here with Zechariah than he does with others in Scripture that seem to be asking very similar questions? You thinking that? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read Gabriel's response, it doesn't, I, I think I'm all right in saying that that's pretty tough. That he's not just kind of like, you know, oh, come here, it's okay. I am Gabriel. That's the kind of sense I get. I stand in the presence of God. It's like, oh, I don't think I would want to hear that. So it does sound tough and we have to ask ourselves, well, why does he respond this way to Zechariah when there are other guys that struggle and ask for signs or other things throughout history in the scriptures? and, and, And it seems like he responds a little bit differently. Some of this is mystery, but I do think there are some, some uh, truths that we can uncover here to help us forward. We might think of guys like Abraham. Abraham asks almost the exact same question, in fact. We're not going to go into that, but uh, we, we could think of Gideon as well and others who've, who've asked these sorts of questions and they don't get rebuke, it seems. Instead, it seems they get help. Help help me understand. Help, help me give me that sign or, or whatever it might be. Move them forward in that way. And while we could consider some of those um, from the Old Testament context, and you know I would love to do that, but we don't have time, um, there's an even more pertinent example actually in the context of Luke's gospel. Um, If you recall with me that Luke, and we've looked at this in the past, I'm not going to do much of it here, Luke is clearly paralleling in these first two chapters the story of John the Baptist with the story of Jesus. I mean, it's... He's weaving in and out of the two stories, clearly paralleling and contrasting them. If we recall that, then we will also notice that Zechariah's question isn't all that different in form from the question Mary asks when Gabriel announces to her that she will conceive the Christ, the very Son of God. You got the angelic anou- the angelic appearance, the announcement of a coming son, and the human response. Same kind of thing that went ha- that's going on with Zechariah happens with Mary, and here is her question in verse thirty four of chapter one: "How will this be, since I am a virgin? How shall I know this? For I am advancing years, and this and that. How will this be, since I am a virgin?" You look at it, you go what? That seems the same to me. And yet with Mary, the response is much more amiable, right? No rebuke, or discipline, but help. and explanation. This is verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is verse 35. He helps her understand how this is going to work out. He doesn't say, I am Gabriel, right? He said. This is how it's going to happen, Mary. It's going to be awesome. God's going to come upon you. So why? Why? What accounts for the contrasting responses? And I think the difference, it seems to me, lies in the unseen realm of the heart. Though the questions are similar on the surface, I think the hearts beneath them are worlds apart. Now, the heart of Mary, if you keep reading in the text, is exposed uh, a- as we go. It, you see how she responds to Gabriel's explanation. Check that out in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, your word is enough. She was ready to believe. That's why Elizabeth, when she later sees Mary, was said, blessed is the one who believed all that was told her. Right? So there's this heart that's ready to embrace, it would seem. Let it be done to me according to your... That's enough. I just was wondering what was going on and I was struggling and I needed a little help, but I was ready to embrace. This is the difference, I think, between... Interrogation and just simply inquiring, right? It's, it, it, if there is doubt in Mary, it's of a different kind, it would seem to me. There's one that said that, that, that where Zechariah, it would seem by Gabriel's response, is putting God in the dock, prove it. And then Mary is over here saying, Help me get it. I want to get it. Help me get it. I, I, how is this going to be? I, I'm not I'm not buying this. So here is the essential difference. Are we struggling? If you have uh, Facebook, I put it on our Facebook page, actually. And I would encourage you, sometimes I will, just throw in things from the sermon or overflow kind of stuff. Uh, uh, join our Facebook page, and it'll, uh, maybe I'll keep you up to speed with some things. But I put something along these lines there last time. Are we struggling with God? From faith to faith or from doubt to doubt? Let me tell you what I mean. There is a humble doubt that comes under God and says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. It's this kind of begging for help. There's this posture of humility in it. A humble doubt. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I'm ready to receive your word. I just need help. That kind of heart. God is happy to even give signs. I mean, the whole gospel of John is about signs of the Messiah to encourage the faith of his people. God's not opposed to giving signs. He does it all the time and he does it in your life as you come to him humbly. God, help me. I want to know the right way to go. I want to know what's going on. But there is a proud doubt that stands over God. Doesn't come under Him. Stands over Him. Puts Him in the dock and demands, hey, I doubt. Prove it to me or I will not believe. So I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I doubt. Prove it to me or I won't believe. See the difference there? I think... That is what's going on. With the former, God loves to come in and help. With the latter, the, with the proud doubt, no matter how many signs they get, it will never be enough. This is the Pharisees, right? Sign. after I've shown you enough signs. They finally see enough signs, and they say, not let's fall down and worship, but let's kill him. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, and what an amazing messianic sign. And they say, Hmm. How can we put him to death? See that? There's a, there's a doubt that moves from faith to faith and a doubt that moves from doubt to even deeper doubt. What they need at that point is not more intellectual proof, but a, a, an existential humbling, if you will. This is what I think we see going on with Zechariah. I think by Gabriel's response, we can understand that Zechariah is in that latter side of the spectrum. That he's got that kind of proud doubt thing going on. And what he needs at that point is not more evidence. You prove it to my intellect, I will believe. Nope. Never going to happen. I think what he needs in that moment is not evidence. Brokenness. His heart to be broken, himself to be lowered, so that he is ready to receive the word in humility. Does that make sense? That is how I was converted, you guys. I knew all about I knew all the information and i could have researched it forever i was claiming i'm see- i'm seeking i'm going to bible studies i could have kept going forever and i would have i i almost guarantee it i never would have learned enough about the manuscripts or about the you know the evidence for christ against other religions and all these things and what what did it for me God, in His mercy, knew I don't need more evidence. What I need is brokenness. So He took idols from me. My heart broke open. I fell down and I said, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And the Spirit of God loves to to move into that kind of situation. And bless and give you signs and encourage your faith and assure you. That's what He did with me. That's what I assume a lot of your conversion stories look like. It's what he does with Zechariah. It's amazing. You will be silent. It is simultaneously, this is what's awesome about God, simultaneously the sign that Zechariah sought and the humbling that Zechariah needed. One action. You will be silent. There's your sign. There's your humbling. Incredible preparing him to receive the Word of God, to doubt with humility from faith to faith. Now, noticing the contrast between Zechariah and Mary at this point led me to some intriguing considerations. I'll do my best here to to uh, carry you along with some of these things. If I know Luke and if I know God, I think we're to discern something more going on in the conscious paralleling of narratives in these first two chapters. John the Baptist, Zechariah, Mary, Jesus. I think we're to see Luke, God, doing more here than just kind of telling their story. When God is telling one story in the Scriptures, He's always telling two stories. When he is telling a story, he is always telling the story. Does this make sense? Hold on. <laughs> the story that unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. So, he might I mean the whole Bible is composed of individual narratives that can stand alone in many ways. But all those narratives are a part of one grand meta-narrative, right? That fits between the covers of this book when he 's telling a story, he always has the story in view, and I think I think Luke is after this same dynamic here and the way he 's framing these two narratives and I want us to see this I, I certainly we 're supposed to compare and contrast. Zechariah and John the Baptist with Mary and Jesus on a personal level. Certainly. There's there's a lot of meaning to be derived there, and hopefully we just did some of that with the status of their hearts and other things. But I do think we're supposed to compare them at a higher level as well. Maybe a you could say a, a redemptive historical, a a dispensational, a covenantal level. I'll, I'll show you I'll show you what I mean. We're to see them in light of this story, Luke 1 and 2, but also in light of the story, Genesis to Revelation, where God is going in all of this. These characters, these families represent, embody more than just themselves in these moments. They represent, I think, the covenants that they are a part of in the movement of uh, the Scripture's history. Show you what I mean. I probably have lost you at this point. Hold on, okay? Now, recall with me that this, this story, the story, the big story, the plan of God, Genesis to Revelation, the Bible, the story of God is unified and eternal with reference to himself. It is one. And yet, it is unfolding with reference to us. It develops historically with reference to us, to man. We learn about it slowly through time. He's planned it from all eternity. It unfolds temporally for us, right? And as we follow the story from Genesis to Revelation, what we see is that it goes from the age of promise to the age of fulfillment. From the old covenant to the new covenant. And we could even say more narrowly, it moves from law to grace. This is why the Apostle John, John one seventeen, sums up the movement of salvation history this way. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Law to grace. He sums out the whole Bible like that. In the margin here real quick, that's not to say that there's no grace in the Old Testament. Okay? Grace from the moment of a fall, Genesis 3:15, first gospel promise, grace established there, running under everything else God would do with man. but he does add the law to keep men looking back to grace and forward to its fullest expression in the coming Messiah. So he adds law to help move us to grace. Law to grace. Salvation history, this story, the story summed up in that way. Now, all this is well and good, and you're going, okay, great, I, I've read Paul, I understand that, but why do I think this is in our text? Why do I think this applies here to what we're reading about Zechariah, and maybe perhaps as we consider Mary and things like that? Why do I think that is is in the background as Luke is sharing these narratives, that he has the meta-narrative in view. One significant piece is understanding where John the Baptist fits in the unfolding of this plan, of this history as it moves towards Christ. Okay, We are given in Luke's gospel certain programmatic statements concerning John the Baptist, where he fits in redemptive history, where he fits covenantally even in this story I'll give you a couple of them here Luke 16:16 16, 16, Jesus tells his disciples this The law and the prophets were until and the Greek is tough there but it's up to or as far as John since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached Now that text is a little difficult. It'll make more sense in the light of the next one. But trust me on this. It seems that John stands on the side of the old covenant law and prophets. Okay, That he was a part of the pointing to the age of fulfillment. Pointing to the coming of the fullness of grace. That's where John stood. He just had the privilege of breaking out across the Testaments and being the one to directly point to the Messiah face to face. But even though he is this bridge figure, we're not left to doubt where he stands in the story. He is a part of the old. This is why Luke 7.28, Jesus would also say this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God, is greater than He. In other words, (laughs) what I am doing, the King of this kingdom, is so different. It is of a completely different dispensation so that the greatest born of women, John the Baptist, is is lower than the least in this new kingdom work I am establishing. Get that? he's saying what is happening with me is altogether different even though it's all connected and the law and the prophets all flowing in and pointing towards I am the I, I am of I am God I am introducing something altogether new although it's been anticipated and connected to everything old Now we come to Zechariah Now we come to Zechariah And we're prepared to see his story in light of the story, okay? Zechariah standing on the side of the law with John actually represents the pinnacle of the law in many ways. Let me think about this with me. He's a priest of the division of Abijah, verse 5, Luke 1, 5. He has a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So Elizabeth was also of priestly heritage. This was a special honor for a priest to marry a wife of a priestly lineage as well. That's for the second part of verse 5. And in verse 6, they both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So they're holding to this law and they're righteous and they're 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 following it. It kind of recalls what Paul would say later, where he's like, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Right. And then this is now the highest day in Zechariah's life, where we are here uh, in the story. Because you recall, he was chosen by Lot. This would be the one day of his life when he got to go into the holy place, offer the incense before God, and intercede for his people. This is the highest day of this priest's life. And what happens? It's the day that he is lowered to the dirt. It's the day when though he receives the first gospel proclamation of the New Testament... He meets it not with faith and joy, but unbelief. And he's stricken silent. Now, seen in light of the story, as I'm reading this and I'm looking at Zechariah and I'm seeing the clear parallels with Mary and and I'm wondering what is God, what is Luke trying to do here? Seen in light of the story, I think, I think that Zechariah's silence is symbolic of both man's inability to keep the law and the law's inability to change the man. Okay? Even in its highest form, the law is essentially impotent. It was never meant to save us, but rather to silence us and get us ready for the Christ. This, in fact, is exactly the metaphor used by Paul when he says, "Why, Why the law? What's the point of the law?" Romans three nineteen to twenty. I encourage you to go there. I want you to see this. Romans three nineteen to twenty. So you got John, Acts, Romans first. Oh yeah, Romans. That's all you need to do. (laughs) Romans three nineteen to twenty. This is what he says about the law. Which again, Zechariah and John stand on that side, anticipating grace. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that, what? Every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So here's what we're given. The law of God was never meant to be a ladder by which you and I kind of climb up and gain favor with him. Not a ladder. It was rather meant to be a muzzle. Would come over our mouths and lower us before him, silence us so that every mouth may be stopped. The law was not to fuel our pride, but to empty us of it. There's a whole lot of noise going on in the world, right? A whole lot of noise. In politics and in academia and entertainment in athletics. Me, me, a whole lot of ego. Look at me, look at my glory. I can do it. And I'll tell you something. It's in the church, and I'll tell you even more. It's in my heart. Me, aren't I great? Look at my success. Look at my triumph. Here I am. I want to be good. I'm climbing that ladder. I'm making some noise. The law of God comes in and says, silence. Quiet. Man has nothing to say before God. Nothing. Here's the amazing thing. God's end goal isn't to leave us there. It's not to leave us in silence. Not to leave us with the muzzle on. He wants to move us in. He wants to take us into song. Okay? He wants to lead us to the Messiah. The law law is not opposed to grace, but subservient to it. It takes us by the hand, walks us silently, you could say, to the foot of the cross. That's what is meant by the law. Read this in Paul, verse 21 of chapter 3 in Romans Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The law comes in, silences us, but it's not just to leave us there. We go, as it were, with Zechariah. He wants to take us still. That word is going to be fulfilled. The law comes in, silences, but moves us to the Messiah and His grace. He's not here to condemn. He's here to truly save. He's not here to kill. He's here to truly make alive. I want you to see how this works out in Zechariah's life. Don't worry. We'll, we'll come to the end here soon. We've seen the law and the silence as it came for Zechariah. Now this is amazing. I want you to watch as this silence, as this law leads him to grace, leads him to song. The day that Gabriel spoke of in verse 20, these, these, these words that will be fulfilled, well, they're fulfilled in verse 57. That day comes. Luke 1, verse 57. Let's go there. There's a lot to say. I'll just point out a couple of things. I want you to watch how this silence moves him towards grace and song. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And on the eighth day, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped down to verse 59 there. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet because he still can't talk. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened. His tongue was loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. Now, two things I want us to notice. One, Zechariah's tongue is loosed at this point. Two, his tongue is loosed in direct correlation with the naming of his son. There is this naming controversy. And Luke focuses in on it. Everyone's going, why are you calling him John? It should be Zechariah. It seems like it would break tradition to to name, uh, name your kid after someone who's not in your family line. And say, okay, what is the deal? There's this clear uh, message, it seems, or at least Luke is trying to draw our attention to this name controversy. And he wants us to see the, the importance of this name. In fact, it's as Zechariah is writing, his name is John. As he's writing that, that his tongue is loosed. And he speaks again. Blesses God. Why does Luke, why do I make a big deal out of it? Well what does John's name mean? Anybody know? Yachanan in the Hebrew. Yahweh is gracious. The silence that Zechariah was stricken with. His heart, the doubts, the things there, the old nature, if you will, what the law stood for, led Him by the hand to Yahweh is gracious. So I know that's not a name from my family line, but we're talking about something new here. We're talking about a work of grace. And as we read, it's at that moment He is filled with the Spirit. His tongue is loosed. He's blessing God, and he is now singing a different tune. It's no longer interrogation, it is devotion and praise. And if you look at his song, it's all about Jesus. From beginning to end. First words of the song, verse 68. It's coming out of of Zechariah's mouth. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. It's Jesus in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. (laughs) He even brings up the prophets. He's like, I get where all this is going now. Now I see it. All the prophets pointing to it, anticipating what is happening now. I can't get enough of this God and His grace. It's coming to us in the Messiah. His Son, you would think he would sing about his Son, right? John. (laughs) He knows his Son, like those prophets, existed just to point forward to this one. You remember, you remember John's essential message. We quoted a lot here. This is it. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John existed to say, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Let's go to him. Let's go to him. Let's go to him. He embodies all that the law and prophets stood for. Don't look at me. Go to Him, the one who will accomplish and become the source of grace for all sinners. Christ's life was a song of devotion to His Father, right? You could say. The whole thing. Everything that the Father told Him to do, I do. And whatever I see Him, I, 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 I want to live for Him. All of His life, this song of faith, this song of devotion. But if the Messiah is going to teach us to sing again, He would have to be silenced, right? He would have to bear the curse. This is what's crazy. Zechariah, in our text, by grace, move from silence to song to joy. By grace... But as you watch what the Messiah and all this stuff is about, as you watch what happens in the Messiah's life on the cross, it's wrath that comes for Him. And His, his song is turned to silence for us. I mean, His whole life, perfect, spotless, blameless, this Lamb. And yet we read, He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His song, his song would end. He would bear the curse. He would bear the curse of our sin, the curse of the law. The law would come with its wrath and full force upon Him and his, silen- his song would be silenced. Here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. As we watch on that cross as He dies and utters His last breath, sings His last note as it were, It seems to us the music has stopped. It seems to us the Messiah's song is over. But here's what happens. It's truly a, you know this from the Psalms? It's truly a selah, if you will. A momentary pause. A bridge into a greater chorus. A greater climactic part of this song. When he would rise from the dead. He would rise from the dead. His song would reach a higher note and He would now call us into it. Send His Spirit back to us and what happens on the day of Pentecost. But their tongues are just loosed and they're singing and praying and praising God for the works He's done. He's calling us in to this song. What we see with Zechariah, this silence moving to singing, is a foreshadow. It's an anticipation of what God has done with us. We'll do as we watch through the Gospels with others. He would give Himself to the curse of silence. Rise up. Call others into His song. Loosen our lips. The law we are freed from. Him. You read this in Acts 13.39. Uh, By Him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He takes the muzzle that's on our mouths and he breaks it. He shows us in his mercy we can do nothing before God to gain his favor. But he walks us to the cross and he says, now watch what I did and sing with me. We will move with Him from silence to song, from law to grace. He's changing our hearts even now. Holy Spirit in us, His Spirit in us, the Messiah singing His song again in and through us. And we watch what's in heaven but a choir with every tongue singing out praise to the Lamb. I don't know where you're at. Like I said, I'm not going to go into that final point. We're done here. I don't know where you're at. But I'll tell you this. If you haven't been silenced by the law, you will never sing to the Christ. Do you know that? One of my professors used to say, something that was interesting, he would say, uh, you know, we're not singing ho-hum grace, how all right the sound, it saved a pretty good person like me. No. As long as we think we're pretty good, we'll sing ho-hum grace. But the real song is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Silenced by the law, taken by the hand to the cross. Amazing grace. I'll leave us there. I went too long again. Pearl's going (laughs) to... Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you unleash, you will loose our tongues. You call us into your song. We are silenced by the law, but given your song in your grace. We sing our songs to you here this morning. Thankful, with grateful hearts. Humbled and yet at the same time exalted. couldn't have picked a better song to end with for. we lean not on our own understanding we humble ourselves before you you help us in your mercy to humble us to be humble before you we can't do it We're broken low but at the same time you build us back up And make us what we could never be by Your grace. Jesus, thank You that You're in our midst. Thank You that You're at work in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be in one sense silenced in our flesh this week. We would be unleashed in the Spirit to sing. We love You, Lord. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen.